who. Uh, I'm Chris Gorman, and I'm one of the elders here. So uh, good to have you this morning. And um, we're beginning actually a little mini-series. That almost sounds like a television thing, like a little mini-series on the church. Uh, and uh, so today, uh, today I get to do the first, uh, the first message of that. Uh, before we get into fall messages, and so today we're going to be talking about church membership. <laughs> I, I had to laugh as I was talking to a couple of people about this. They said, yeah, what are you talking on today? I said, church membership, and they go, oh, that was the response. I was like, yep, that's, that usually like sucks the life out of the air, is to have a, have a message on membership, like just what our culture loves uh, is to talk about membership. But I hope today, um, in fact, uh, just to give you a little backdrop before we read this passage, um, I don't know, several years ago, many moons ago, uh, in the 90s, uh, I planted a church, and as we, as we got into the church, several years into the church, we, we started off with church membership, but we kind of slacked off in how we did it, and uh, I had a couple families, new families, come into the church, and they, they said, they, they kind of came to me, and they said, uh, what is this church membership thing about anyway? Is it really biblical? Is it in the Bible? Like, is this just something you made up that you're just making us do or is this really, like, it seemed to them like it was a, a set of hoops to jump through that they had to do in order to be in or out. And, and it seemed like sort of just this, this really strange thing. And they were like, I don't, they, they were challenging me. Like, I don't think it's in the Bible. And I, I really appreciate both of them, both of those families, uh, because it really caused me to, and my leaders, to go and begin to study God's Word and to decide and to really wrestle with, is, is church membership, is it really something that's actually in the Bible because uh, I tend to find in my own life, as well as in any church, that things that aren't rooted significantly in biblical convictions don't tend to get lived out very well, do they? Like things that we just do for the sake of doing them eventually just fades off in any importance or significance. It's not helpful and eventually becomes more confusing than, than important. And so, so for me, this became, uh, I couldn't answer their question very well, and I began to go, is it? Is it biblical? Is this really something that we find deeply rooted in Scripture? And so my hope today is to show you, so you, you can be the judge at the end of this message, but my hope today is to be able to show and to go through Scripture and to really answer the question, is it a biblical conviction that we should be members of a local church? And my hope is, is that that statement will be true, that membership in a local church really is God's gracious means of affirming, of affirming your membership or your identity uh, in his family, in him, uh, for his glory. And so that's my hope today, is to be able to uh, demonstrate that. Hopefully by the end of this, uh, you won't go, uh, talk about membership. Uh, <laughs> so we'll find out. I do find it interesting, we tend to... Um, we tend to think in our culture, I've heard this many years over, that we are not a very committed culture. Um, most of us might agree to that statement. I disagree with that statement, by the way. I have never seen people more committed than all, all of us. We are very committed to things that matter to us. I, I've, I have children who are athletes, and I meet parents and families who are extremely committed, committed to clubs, committed to sports, committed to all, we are a very committed culture. We have, you, you are in contracts right now. Every one of you have some kind of contract that you've absolutely committed to. You're dedicated to. You give time and money. You give your life. Uh, you, you spend a lot. All of us have things that we are very committed to, right? So, um, so I think that's not necessarily 
an issue. The question is, um, do we actually see this as a worthy thing? Do we see this as a real significant biblical thing that we should be committed to the local church? So, with that, Matthew chapter 16. Let's stand as we read God's word this morning. We stand because we want to honor God. This is his word to us. And so, like I said, this is a passage we're going to begin in. And then we're going to give a big overview of scripture. We're going to go through lots of passages this morning. Verse 13, chapter 16 in Matthew. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one, that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word today. I pray, God, that you would take these words and all of the scriptures that we will look at this morning and that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would cause us to understand and to know this glorious gift that we have to be a member of your body, the body that you have purchased by your blood, the blood of your son, Jesus. And so, God, give us understanding. Give us, give us a robust understanding of this, this area of church membership. And may it be a blessing to us today. And so encourage this church. Encourage your body. Encourage us, God, through your word, by your spirit. And we pray this in your name. Amen. In Matthew chapter 16, uh, my, my first point actually that I want to just make is that the church is like an embassy. So if I could give you an image, it's one of an embassy, by the way. And an embassy, just to give you a definition of that, um, an embassy is on, is, is on foreign soil, all right? And an embassy is there to represent the principles, the values, the desires, the wishes, the purposes, the vision of its home country. So it's, it's located in foreign soil. It represents its home country in that soil. And, and even more importantly, an embassy affirms citizenship and protects its citizens. That's what an embassy does in a foreign soil. Uh, this, this became really real to me. Um, we've been praying as a church, maybe you even got this email, we've been praying for one of our brothers who was, came here and spoke to us, Soreen. You remember Soreen? He took a, his church on a missions trip to Guadalajara, Mexico. Uh, he got ready to fly back with his church, and they held him up. And he was not able to come back into the country. He's been there for a couple weeks. Uh, and what they were, So he had to go to the American consulate, to the embassy, and he had to prove who he was, like he had to make his case, and they had to investigate and check everything out, and it took some time, and finally, 
they affirm that yes, he is who he says he is. That's what an embassy does. An embassy confirms or affirms that you are in fact a citizen or you do have the proper paperwork that be recognized in the country which you are from. And so, so this, is a, this is what an embassy does. It represents the purposes, vision, values of its home country and it affirms citizenship and protects those citizens, all right? So let me give you a picture here. So in Matthew chapter 16, um, the disciples and Jesus have had a pretty long week, all right? They've had a lot of stuff going on. If you back up a few chapters, you see that there's the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, Jesus has walked on water. Uh, they, they've had several things happen. People are being healed. And in the midst of all of this, there's these, these Jewish teachers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that are, that are stirring up trouble and trying to question Jesus and trying to see if, if he really is who he says he is. And so there's all kinds of challenges going on. And then right before this passage, in, in the first part of chapter 16, these, these Jewish teachers, they, they demand that Jesus prove it. Like, show us a sign, they say. And they're, they're going about trying to get Jesus to, you know, show us that you're really who you say you are. Give us some sign from heaven. And so Jesus has to deal with that. And then, then he's, he starts sitting down. He talks to the disciples. And he's warning the disciples about these, these false teachers, about these teachers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he's, he uses this whole imagery of yeast or leaven. You'll see in the passage right before this. And he's saying, beware, be, be really careful about the yeast or the leaven of these, these Pharisees and the disciples, right? And the Phar- now the disciples, to their, just to give them a little grace, it's been a long week, right? So, so they're sitting over here on the side as Jesus is trying to teach them something really big and give them a warning. They're over here on the side going, bread? Like, do you guys have bread? Like, did you, do you guys have any bread with you? Like they're, they're, they're talking about like actual loaves of bread. And Jesus literally has to say, do, do you not understand what I'm saying here? Like really, you know, do you ever feel like this is the way God must be with, with us? I, this is exactly, I'm always encouraged by these passages because I'm like, I know this is exactly, I'm a little dense. It takes God time to get it through my skull at times. And this is the, he says, oh, you have little faith. Do you not understand what I'm telling you? He has to go back and say, don't you understand the point of the the feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000? And Jesus has to explain. And then he finally says to them, the leaven is the the teaching of these Pharisees. And the disciples go, oh, oh, I get it. Okay, now we got it. Like they, they finally have this light bulb moment. All right, so... Fast forward to verse 13. That just gives you a little bit of background to this passage. Verse 13, they're in Caesarea Philippi. Having a conversation, Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, who do the people say that I am? By the way, just connect this to 1 John. We've been preaching 1 John, right? What's the test of a true disciple? It's what they believe about Jesus, right? Jesus, assuming the disciples got their ear to the ground, he says, who, who, what are people saying out there about me? And they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, and others say you're Elijah. Note, note that all these people are dead, right? <laughs> some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah some, or some, some other prophet, right? And so Jesus is listening to all this, and then he turns to them. It's a powerful question that all of us have to answer. He says, who do you say I am? What do you say? And this is a beautiful moment because Peter, now just remember, these dull, hard of hearing, slow to understand disciples 
who couldn't understand a simple illustration that Jesus was giving them just a few verses before. Peter, probably the dullest of them all, right? Peter's the guy who has foot and mouth disease where he's constantly, every time he acts or reacts, it's always the wrong thing initially if you just study Peter in the New Testament. And so Peter immediately, it seems like, without any hesitation, simply says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, and I think there's no accident about the correlation between their dullness up above, they're unable to understand, and now all of a sudden Peter speaks with such unbelievable clarity that Jesus says, Peter, there's absolutely no way that you said that on your own. There's no way that you can come up with that. And the reason why Jesus says that is because not only did Peter profess accurately who Jesus was, he professed it, he said it with absolute pinpoint precision accuracy. He said the very things that the prophets in the Old Testament, you can find it in Hosea, you find it most clearly as we just went through Daniel. This is the actual title for Jesus, the the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is what Daniel prophesied about the Messiah who would come. This is what Hosea and Jeremiah, it's all over the Old Testament. And here Peter, just out of the blue, this hard of hearing, slow to understand, foot in mouth kind of guy, just proclaims in an instance, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Powerful. And Jesus says, The reason why you can say that, Peter, is because my Father has made it known to you. That's true of all of us here who can profess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's because of the work of God who has revealed himself to us. And how has God revealed himself to us? In Jesus. (laughs) They've actually gotten to see with their eyes. We get to see through the scriptures. They can see that Jesus is the revelation of God. That he is, in fact, who he says he is. And God has graciously made this known to Peter so that he would profess in this moment. And Peter and, and Jesus says, uh, you are blessed because, you, because God has revealed this to you. Do you feel blessed today? Just on a side note, do you feel blessed today? If you know and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he's died on the cross for you, that he's the Savior of the world, the Lord of your life, the treasure of everything, if you know that and believe that with conviction, it's because God has placed his favor on your life. He has blessed you. He has made himself known to you through his word, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is a tremendous blessing that we should be grateful for. But Jesus is just getting warmed up. He turns to Peter and he says, I tell you, you are Peter. Now there's a play on words here that we need to note. You are Peter, Petros, the the pronoun, the name Peter. He says, you are Peter and on this rock, Petra, the feminine word for rock, an object, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Um, There's probably not a verse in the whole Bible that's maybe caused more uh, division over the course of church history than maybe this one right here, possibly. He doesn't believe me. (laughs) 
<laughs> because, because uh, it, especially when it comes to Protestants and Catholics, like this is, this is one of the verses that has caused the division, because some would say that Peter, the, the, those who would believe in papal succession, the Pope would say that Peter is the first Pope, and he's saying on Peter, who's the first Pope, he's going to build his church, and there's a succession of Popes after that, right? And then and the Protestants come along and said, no, um, it's the profession that Peter makes of the gospel. It's the proclamation of the gospel that he's talking about here. That's Peter who simply makes this profession of the gospel. And it's the gospel, it's the proclamation of the gospel that actually is, gonna, is the foundation of the church, right? Now, if you don't, if you don't believe me, uh, look at Ephesians chapter 2 really quick. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, Peter, or Paul says this. He says, so then you are no longer aliens and strangers, that is prior to Christ, but now you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, the church, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That, that the apostles and the prophets, that their message, their proclamation of the gospel that was first delivered to them and proclaimed and the church sprang up, Right, that their proclamation is a foundation of the church and the ultimate cornerstone the, that the foundation sits on is Jesus himself. Does that make sense? And so, so Jesus is saying to Peter that on this rock, on your profession, on the truth of the gospel proclaimed, the church is going to be built. And nothing will overcome it. Nothing. It will go forward. It is going forward, and it will not be stopped until Jesus returns. The church is marching forward. But he doesn't stop there. He says, now we'll get into, you're going, where's this leading to church membership, right? I know you're asking that question. Verse 19, Jesus goes on to say, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, keys in the Bible refer to uh, power and authority, Right? I came into the church early this morning, about 5 a.m., and uh, I, because I have a key, I can do that. Not every one of you guys have a key. <laughs> right? I have a key. <laughs> I recently became a fire chaplain and, and, uh, for Lacey Fire Department, and they, uh, uh, in fact, I'm on call today, so hopefully we don't get called out here, but but no, they, they, <laughs> and they gave me this little, this little name badge thing, and it has my picture on it, and they said, uh, now this will get you into all the fire stations in Lacey. And I'm like, you trust me that much? Like, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, all of a sudden you're like, whoa, this is kind of serious, right? Uh, just wave the badge. Um, uh, the keys refer to the giving of authority and power. Notice what Jesus is saying here then. Jesus, who has all authority, and all power, he's saying, I'm going to give the keys to the kingdom of heaven to who? To Peter in this passage, but he's ultimately going to give it to the church. And what is he, going to, what is he giving? He's delegating this authority to the church for what purpose? To do what with it? Notice what he continues on saying. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth, and the ESV says shall be, the, the Greek rendering is, is better even, has been, bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth has been loosed in heaven. 
That's as clear as mud, right? You know what that means, right? It makes perfect sense. Whatever you bind and loose. I'm giving you this authority so that you can bind things and loose things. Go get them, right? Sounds perfect. Well, there's actually, uh, there is a perfect, clear understanding. When we, when we understand that, that the binding and the loosing is basically giving the church the authority to affirm to affirm through the proclamation of the gospel, and there's a lot more we could say about this passage, but we're going to move through the whole New Testament here in a minute, that, that, that Jesus is delegating his authority to the church in order to be an embassy, in order to affirm membership in the church. And the way in which binding and loosing happens is through the proclamation of the gospel. The way in which a person is admitted into the kingdom of God saved is through the church proclaiming the gospel, right? This is how you're saved. This is how God opens wide the doors of the kingdom for the world, right? He, the gospel is proclaimed and you are invited to come in, right? Through the, through the, so the binding and the loosing things, notice just a note on the binding and loosing is that the, when it talks about past tense, has been in heaven, so it's we bind things on earth as it already has been. We're not, we're not the ones that do the saving. We're, not the, we're actually affirming on earth what's already true in heaven. We don't have ultimate authority. We're not God, so we have to be careful of understanding that. He's saying what's, we are affirming on earth the work that God has already done and declared in heaven. That's the binding and the loosing. And that work happens through the proclamation of the gospel. Let me give you an example on a negative side of this of what that means. Matthew chapter 23, verse 13. Jesus is confronting these same group of Pharisees and Sadducees, and he says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you, listen, the, the, their message matters. What they've been proclaiming, these, these teachers, matters. He says, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's face. That's a pretty powerful thought, right? That their message actually closes off the kingdom to people. It shuts it in their face. And he says, for you neither enter it yourselves. Why do they not enter it? Hebrews tell us because of their unbelief, because they've rejected Jesus, the Messiah, the only one who is the Savior, right? And so they, they've, they don't enter it themselves, nor, nor allow those who would enter to go in. In other words, they're hindering people from going into the kingdom. They're using the authority that they have to proclaim a message that actually keeps people from the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying to his church, to us, I'm giving you, I'm delegating this authority to you to proclaim the gospel that the kingdom would be wide open to people that people would be able to come and believe and hear, that they would be admitted into the kingdom of God, to become citizens of God's kingdom, to become adopted into his family by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, so this is the picture of what the church, this is an embassy, right? Again, the church proclaims the gospel. People believe it and are enter into the kingdom of God, or they reject it and they are excluded from the kingdom of God, Right? Not through us, but through the proclamation of the gospel that we proclaim, right? And this is, this is the picture that Peter, or that Jesus is giving to the church, this binding and loosing. And the reason why I would say it's for the whole church and not just for Peter or a few leaders is because two chapters over, Jesus is going to give 
give us a, a, a way to handle conflicts between one another as Christians. And he's going to give us a process that we go through. When someone sins against you, he says, here's what you do. And, and I'm not going to go into it in detail because we're going to talk about that passage next week. He goes through four stages, basically. And the last stage of that, the last stage, the most serious stage, if someone is completely unrepentant and stubborn and refuses to trust in Christ, refuses to, to, to actually repent of their sins, the last stage is it says, now tell it to the church. That's a serious matter, right? Bring it before the church because it's the church that's been given authority by Jesus to decide these things, to care for one another, to, to, again, we're an embassy, right? We care for the citizens. We affirm citizenship and we care for and, and take care of and protect the citizens of, of that embassy, of that country. And so, and so what, what that says is not only does he say take it to the church, but he says even if they refuse to listen even to the church, if you look in Matthew chapter 18, it says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, the authority of binding and loosing, affirming that someone's in or seeing in their unrepentance and their rejection of the gospel that they're not in, affirming that on earth that's already been affirmed in heaven is a delegated authority to the church to do. Does that seem pretty serious to you? <laughs> that seems pretty serious, doesn't it? Seems important, right? That for the care of people's souls, this is, this is what we do as a church. Now, I just want to take us on a little trip and say now, how does this all connect to church membership? To what does it mean to be a member? This is a word, actually. This word member is in the Bible in many places, several places. I've already quoted a few of them. And uh, Pastor Nick quoted one, Romans 12, verse 5, that talks about being individually members one of another, that we belong to one another as members. Uh, second, or 1 Corinthians 12, 27 talks about the same word, that we are each individually members of the body of Christ. So the idea of being a member is not actually that foreign at all to the Bible. It's a, it's a common thing. But what I want you to see is let's take a trip then. If the church is to be like an embassy, affirming citizenship, protecting its citizens, and also at times affirming that a person is not, uh, not in, um, if that's the case, how does this work throughout the New Testament? Let's actually see how this plays out in the early church in the New Testament. Does that sound all right? We're going to take a little tour, so you're going to have to follow. I'm going to go through some scriptures. A few of them will be on the screen, but there's no way to go through each of these and quote them, so I'm going to, I'm going to go through this pretty fast. So the first thing we want to look at, I'm going to give four pieces of evidence that it matters that every person who is a Christian, who is a believer and belongs to the, the big C, body of Christ, ought also to be a member of the little c, local manifestation of that body, wherever it is. And so, the witness of the early church. In Acts chapter 2, in fact, in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, um, there is a clear, identified number of, of people. It says in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, that there were 120 believers meeting in Jerusalem. All right? So just the fact that they counted is interesting to me. Like, they actually counted. They knew. Like, there's 120 of us. We're 120 strong. This is where we're at after Jesus takes off and sends the Holy Spirit upon them, right? And then in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up and he proclaims the gospel to this whole crowd of, of Jewish people 
that are there from all kinds of places around, all different languages they spoke. He proclaims the gospel in verse 37 and through 39. It says that after he got done preaching this message, that they were cut to the heart by the truth of the gospel. It, it had an impact on them, and they were moved so powerfully that they said, what shall we do? You know, they, they were asking and in a sense, pleading, what do we do with this? We, we, we believe this, now what do we do? And Peter says, repent, that is to turn away from your sin, turn to Christ. When you turn away from one thing, you're turning to something else. It's the idea of repentance, turning away from sin, turning to Christ. And he says, and be baptized, every one of you. All right, so they, were, they repented of their sins, they, they believed in Christ, they repented of their sins, they were baptized into Christ, And then it says in verse 41 that they were then added, they were added, those who were saved, 3,000 of them, so now they're 3,120 strong, so they actually counted, right? There's approximately 3,000 people that day who believed that message, were baptized, and it says they were added to the church that day. They were added to the number, right? So there was a number identified. They had a means of identifying who is actually a believer and who's not. Not everyone, there were more than 3,000 people there that day. So not everyone believed the message, but they identified, affirmed that 3,000 of them had in fact believed the message and they were baptized and they were brought into the local church. Now church membership at this point, pretty simple. There's one church, (laughs) It's in Jerusalem, one location, right? There was no conversation going on, well, which church do you go to, right? That was not happening, right? Because there's one church, one place, one town, all right? It's a pretty good-sized church at this point, right? In, in a moment, deal with that kind of church growth. I'm not so sure that would be easy. But many times throughout the book of Acts, it's, it says this five more times. It's going to say that they believed and they were added to the number, Right? Five more times in the book of Acts. There was a number and they were added to it. And what did it mean to actually be added to the church? What does that actually mean? Well, Acts 2.42. What did those 3,000 believers do immediately upon repenting, being baptized, and being brought into the membership of the local body? It says they devoted themselves. That word devotion in Acts chapter 2.42 is a powerful word. We, you can't overstate it. We, sometimes in English, we lose the real weight of words that are translated into Greek. But this is a word that means to absolutely to give yourself wholeheartedly to something. In, in essence, I, I think of it more like a marriage, right? In marriage, you stand before God in the church, and you, you say some pretty radical things, right? That apart from the Spirit of God, frankly, none of you can uphold, right? And this is really... Uh, a picture in a sense, like you're, you're giving yourself in, in a marriage ceremony, you're saying, I am giving myself to this person completely, wholly, uh, to love, honor, and cherish till death do us part. Like I'm going to give myself to her or to him forever. This is, and, and this is in essence what this idea of devoting themselves to something is. They gave themselves wholeheartedly to what? To four things. The apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This is what they did. They devoted themselves to hearing the teaching of God's word, being taught, not just any word. Notice it's the apostles' teaching. Now here, the apostles are literally present. But we're still listening to the apostles' teaching, right? 
that right here in this word, this is the apostles' teaching. This is Paul's teaching and Peter's teaching. This is what they, the foundation upon which we, we proclaim the gospel. And so, so they devoted themselves to teaching. They, they devoted themselves to fellowship, gathering regularly to encourage, exhort, build one another up. They broke bread together. They celebrated the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do today. And then they, they prayed. They prayed for one another, for the world. They prayed for each other. And it says at the end in verse 47, as they did those things, and it goes on and gives some description of what that looked like, as they did that, God added to their number daily those who were being saved. The church continued to grow as they heard, heard the word taught, fellowshiped, devoted themselves, broke bread together and prayed. God brought more growth into the church. Um, and that growth was, again, something that they took serious. But eventually, the church spread from Jerusalem out into the countrysides. Now, we won't get into too much to how that happened. They were kind of stubborn, uh, and so God brought some persecution. <laughs> so, sounds, like, sounds like Christians, right? Kind of, we, we kind of enjoy what we're doing. We're hanging out. This is good. Uh, 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 Pastor Nick talked about a cul-de-sac mentality, right? We just kind of, we like this, you know, nobody comes in, nobody comes out, we kind of like our little group. And the reality is, uh, uh, God said, this is not my p- plan. My plan is that the gospel would go to the nations. So, persecution comes to Jerusalem, they spread throughout the countrysides, um, and all of a sudden, all these scattered Christians that start leaving Jerusalem start to proclaim the gospel, and churches begin to spring up. In Antioch, they lay hands on Paul and Barnabas. They go out and proclaim the gospel. Churches begin to spring up. And now, all of a sudden, and not very long, we have churches in Corinth. We have churches in Philippi and Thessalonica. We have churches in Antioch. We have churches in Crete. We have churches in Achaia. There's churches all over the place, right? There's, there's all these bodies of Christ springing up through the proclamation of the gospel, the, the mission of God is going forward, the, and, and, and there's people coming to Christ. And so, in fact, if you look in verse, uh, verse, chapter 1 of Corinthians 1, verse 2, he says this, to the, to the church of God, notice how Paul says this, to the church of God, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, the church of God meaning the whole church, that is every believer everywhere. That's the big C church, that every one of us who believe in Jesus Christ, we belong to that church And so he says, to the church of God, the whole church, that is in, however, a particular location, Corinth. Small c, this local manifestation of the big church. So there's a universal big c church, and it manifests itself all over the countryside in all kinds of places in all these little localities. And so the one in Corinth, he says, and who are the people that belong to it? Those who are sanctified, that is a word that means to be set apart, in Christ Jesus are called to be saints together with all of those who in every place, again, see the the local sense of that, all the saints in Corinth, but they're also called together with all the saints in the whole world, right, Uh, who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have this picture of the church. Now, membership starts to get a little more tricky. See, it's at this point that things change. It's still pretty simple in these locations. If you became a Christian in Thessalonica, at least we think in that town, there's just one place, right? Again, you're not really, you know, it's not like five, six churches necessarily, but some of the places did have. They had house churches that met, many house churches that met throughout the countrysides, and yet they were called the church in Ephesus, or the church in Thyatira, the church in Achaia, or the church in Philemon, that when it, in the book of Philemon, he said the church that meets in your home, 
So there were lots of churches. And at this point, church membership became a little bit different. And in fact, so much so that when, when one Christian would leave one church and go to another town to another church, they would actually send letters of recommendation. Did you know that was in the Bible? We, we, we sometimes practice these things, right? And we don't realize they actually are rooted in what they did in the first century church. Right? Let's look at verse 18 of Acts. Acts chapter 18, I should say, verse 27. And when he, when he this, there was this guy named Apollos who was taught by Priscilla and Aquila, and then Apollos is going to go out and boldly proclaim the gospel. And as he goes, it says, as when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and they wrote to the disciples, that is over there, they wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Isn't that great? They actually wrote a letter. Why? Because the church is an embassy, right? You have one person who's a believer that shows up in another church who's been affirmed as a Christian in that church now shows up in this church, how do we know that that person is a genuine believer except that a local church has affirmed that they are in fact a believer, right? And so Paul would send, and these, this is in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, we find Paul doing this, we, we find that they would send a letter with them that would simply vouch for their character, would say, yes, this person has been affirmed by a local church that they are a Christian and you should welcome them in, right? You should welcome them. That's that's really as simple and as difficult as it really gets. And so, so we see in the New Testament that there was a means. It became a little more complicated when all of a sudden there's churches spread throughout the countryside. And by the time we get to the second century, if you read through history books, you read through church history, it gets really complicated because false teaching and false churches begin to spring up, trying to trying to teach false doctrines. And so the need to actually affirm that someone understood the true gospel became even more important. And now fast forward to right now, this day in Lacey, Washington, where there are hundreds of churches right here in this area. There's a need, right? A need to actually affirm does any individual who comes into a church, do they actually believe the true gospel? Or could it be as is sometimes the case, over 20 years of ministry, this has happened more than I wished, it, I wished it would, where someone comes in and you find out they're actually from a church that's not a real church. Now you might say, well, that seems pretty arrogant to say, but it's not hard. A true church is a church that preaches the true gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Not the gospel of the Pharisees, the gospel that kept people from the kingdom, but the gospel that proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, right? Crucified, buried, risen, reigning, right? The church, a church is a church if it preaches the true gospel. If it's celebrated, this is all throughout church history even, if it's celebrated and and, uh, the, the ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and a church is a church if it was cared for and led by elders, in fact, that was one of the, that's one of the tests here, even that church membership was important. We're going to see in just a moment. So, so sometimes churches are not actual churches. They are preaching a gospel that's not accurate. And so our job as, a, as this local church and every other local church is to affirm when someone comes in and wants to be a part, is to affirm that they actually understand the gospel and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Right? So, 
couple conclusions here, and then we'll make a few final points here. But one of the interesting conclusions, I think, is that it's interesting in the New Testament, if you read through those texts, that in the book of Acts, when the early church got started, there was no such thing, there was no category for being a member of the church and not being a part of the local church. There is no such category in the New Testament. The New Testament knows of no Christian who says, oh, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian, but then removes him or herself from the actual local body and is this lone ranger out here. Like, that Christianity does not exist in the Bible, just so you know. It it doesn't make any sense. The very means that God has given to you as an individual Christian is the local body of Christ to care for you, to encourage you, to help you grow, and you to help them grow. Like, that, that is what it means to be a Christian, to be a member of the body in the New Testament. That if you are a member of this, of the big C church, if you are a believer in Christ, you're a member of his church, then you are also ought to be a member of the local church. That, that's the reality of the New Testament. Um, I love what uh, Jonathan Lehman, uh, he says this. He says, in the Bible, to be a Christian is to belong to a church. No one gets saved and then wanders around by him or herself thinking about whether to join a church. People repent. This is the pattern we just read about in the New Testament. People repent. They're baptized into the fellowship of the church. They look to Christ as the Lord and, the, and means of being united to Christ's people. So being united to Christ is to be united to his people locally as well as globally. That's, that's the picture uh, that we see in the New Testament. There is no other category in the New Testament uh, for our faith. Uh, we've seen so far that there's a, they, they actually took great care of identifying who was actually believers and who was not. Uh, and there's many other examples that we could give of that, like Acts chapter 5 is a great example. You can go home and read um, of that. Uh, they had a means of determining who was a believer and who was not because that was the church's job, is to affirm what God has already done in a person's life. We don't know what those means are. So one of the wis- wisdom points that we have to have as Christians in our day, there is no exact process in the Bible. And it takes wisdom for us in each local church to determine how are we going to affirm that someone is a genuine believer and welcome them in. Each local church figures out a process that works, that, that simply affirms that. And I think the simpler the better. And I think we have a pretty simple process here. I got to join the church for the first time, really, when I came here. I've been a pastor, and so we don't go through this process. I shouldn't say for the first time. That's a, but I, when I became a Christian, I was baptized into a local church, but I soon left it to go to college, and I became a youth pastor and, and became a part of the church there. But I went through the process here, and uh, Nick sat down with me in my family, in my living room, and he asked us some questions of whether we understood the gospel uh, and affirmed, affirmed that we were genuine Christians and uh, then we were brought up here and welcomed into the body of Christ. And that's, that's really as hard and as difficult as it is. And uh, I think it's, a great, um, it's, it's great to be able to sit down and, and hear people's testimonies and hear the word, hear how they've come to faith and, and just see um, demonstrated a person's faith in Christ. Um, so, three more things here quickly. The other evidence that we see in the New Testament of why church membership is a biblical principle 
is the existence of church government or church structure. I use the word government because that actually is in the Bible where it talks about we're supposed to govern the church well. Um, and the, the idea that there is structure in the church is, a, is an evidence that there's needed to be some kind of structure, some kind of means of caring for the body, uh, affirming the body, affirming uh, people's faith, encouraging them. And so we see this in, that, in, for instance, Titus chapter 1, verse 5, where he simply, Paul simply is, is saying, sends Titus to Crete, and he says, I want you to put in order the things that are, the things that are left undone. Right? I want you to put things in order. There's all these churches that have sprang up and they're kind of hanging out out there. I want you to appoint elders in those churches to care for them, to shepherd them, uh, and to bring order uh, to these churches. Um, we see this in the fact that they're in Hebrews 13, verse 17, or there's many passages, Acts 20, verse 28, where there are people who are appointed to be elders, shepherds of the church, who are accountable to the church, and then the, the body of Christ is also a called to be accountable to those shepherds, Right? So the fact that there's this mutual accountability between one another, that the shepherds are accountable to the church, the church is accountable to the shepherds, uh, is, is an evidence that there was, there was some defined way in which we encouraged and were accountable to one another. Um, the existence of church discipline. <laughs> I love to say that uh, you, you're not truly in any organization unless you can truly be kicked out, Right? You want to know how, if you want to know how far in you are, you want to know how robust your commitment to something is, can you be kicked out of it? If you don't hold up your end of the deal, if you're living in a, in a church, if you're living in unrepentant sin that puts the, the name of Christ in harm in the community, right? Is, is our understanding of our devotion to the body of Christ so serious and so important that we could actually be removed from it? You know, you know, the interesting thing is, and I don't want to take Nick's thunder away next week, but um, you, what's the one thing that we as Christians absolutely hate? Hypocrisy, right? I shouldn't say that. What's the one thing the world talks about, about Christians, that they absolutely cannot stand? It's hypocrisy, right? It's hypocrisy. And, and yet, what's the one thing that most of us as Christians fight against? Accountability. Right? How do you kill hypocrisy? You make yourself accountable to one another, right? You call each other on your, on your junk, right? When you see a bad attitude or somebody treating their wife wrong, how do you kill hypocrisy in your life? You say, I believe in Jesus, and you sing the song and raise your hand, and then you go out and you treat your wife really bad. How does that hypocrisy get killed? Well, a brother comes up beside you and says, hey, man, I saw how you were talking to your wife. That's not cool. We need to pray about that, Right? That, that's how you kill hypocrisy. It's called accountability, right? So the fact that that exists, in fact, the, 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 Nick will get into that next week. I won't even go anymore. But the, the last point is simply that, that there is a call in the New Testament to this mutual accountability, mutual edification and encouragement that we're supposed to have with each other. That's, so based on those things, hopefully, you can see it's incredibly important to devote yourself to a local church that cares for you, that loves you, that can encourage you, that can help you grow. And the job of you, the local church, is simply to affirm, like an embassy, to affirm whether a person is a member, is actually in, actually believes, and then to care for and take care of those who are, in fact, believers. Galatians chapter 6 actually tells us that we're supposed to care for or love everyone but especially those who are of the household of faith. 
We're supposed to love the world around us, but we're especially supposed to love those who are of the household of faith. There's something significant about that. Um, In fact, I would say the reason why that's so important is if we can't love one another, if the gospel hasn't, isn't impacting us so much that we can't love each other here, how in the world will we love the world out there? Because they're watching, right? They're watching your testimony. They're watching to see how the gospel plays out, right? And so by loving each other, that is the greatest testimony we have, that the that people around the church would see Jesus in us. They would see how we care for and love one another. And I, I praise God that that's the case in, in each of you and in this church. Um, lastly, this... Um, and then I'm going to leave you with a few questions and let you think about it. Um, one person said it this way, what is church membership? On the part of the person who's joining that church, it's a declaration of citizenship in Christ's kingdom. It's a declaration that I, am, I belong to Christ. And it's a declaration that's made to a local pe- group of people. I am, I am a citizen of Christ's kingdom. It's like a passport, Right? It's an announcement made in the press room of Christ's kingdom. It's a declaration that a professing individual is an official, licensed, card-carrying, bona fide Jesus representative. (laughs) Sounds strange, but, right? And the job of the church is simply to affirm that, yes, indeed, that's the case. That's as as simple and as difficult as church membership is. Let me ask you these, these questions, and I just want to take us into a time of communion and reflection on that. Three questions. Having heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he lived a perfect life, died a death that you couldn't die for your sins, was buried, was raised three days later, securing for you eternal life, and now sits at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning until one day he will come back. Having heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is the most important question. Have you trusted him as your Lord and Savior and treasure of your life? Do you believe in that? Do you believe in Jesus? Have you put the weight of your life on him? And then second question is this. Has, if that is true, if you would answer this morning in the affirmative that that's true, has a local body of believers, an embassy, has a local body of believers affirmed that reality in your life? Has that happened for you? Has it been affirmed? No one becomes a Christian in an island all by themselves. They believe, and then it's affirmed by a body of believers. So if you believe, has that been affirmed by a local church? It doesn't even have to be this one. Has a local body of believers, a genuine church, affirmed that? And then thirdly, have you devoted yourself fully to that local church? Have you given yourself to it? Through teaching of the word, fellowship, taking of communion, breaking of bread, and prayer. Have you given yourself completely to it? Serving, caring for, and being cared for that local church. Is that true of you this morning? I encourage you, even as we move into a time of communion, just to to think about those things. There's a spot in your bulletin even where you can just take a moment Think about those questions and maybe God this morning is actually working on your heart to consider today, if that's true of you, that you're a believer, have you committed yourself to the local church? Have you, has that been affirmed? And are you devoted to it? Um, and maybe today is the day and you could come and talk to any one of us 
And maybe today's the day to say, hey, I, wanna, I, I need to commit myself to the local church. Maybe today's the day where you need to give yourself to Jesus and trust in him as your Lord and Savior and treasure. Either way, just take a moment this morning. I'm just going to give you a minute or so. Just pray. Uh, consider those questions before God. And then let's move into a time in which we're going to remember what Christ has done for us as a body. Let's take a moment to pray.